Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will begin looking at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, which form our next section of Scripture. And as we get into this, uh, Peter writes this in verse 1, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires." All right, we'll stop there. That's the first three verses, and that forms a complete sentence, and we may or may not get through all of that. But as we come into this section of Scripture, uh, and we're looking at 2 Peter chapter 3 now, the last chapter, remember, the case that Peter builds is really interesting. He spends chapter 1 building a case for the, if you want to call it the supremacy of Scripture, and the authority of Scripture, the confidence that we have in Scripture, everything that we have uh, absolutely should be grounded on and based on Scripture. And in chapter 2, then he talks about the dangers of false teaching all throughout the chapter. That's the unwelcome companion of orthodoxy. Every time you have the truth being given, someone is going to rise up and twist it. And now in chapter three, we're going to combine the two. How do we then live, right? To, to quote uh, Francis Schaeffer there, uh, how then shall we live? How do we then live uh, with those two things in mind? And does that have a real bearing on us in certain theological issues? And the answer, of course, is yes, it does. See, right now, and we do need to address contemporary issues. I, I realize that the Bible is timeless, but here we are right now as Christians in this day and age, and we're trying to navigate life. And the Bible is still, it hasn't changed. It still is the roadmap for life. It is our charter and compass, as one uh, person used to say and, and pray. I remember in Bible college, we'd have a somebody come by uh, once a year or so during the academic year and speak in chapel and they would pray that and and remind themselves and the student body that the bible was our charter and compass and and it is it, it definitely is and so right now here we are i'm recording this in the year 2023 it's march and uh, we live in this age that has now been dubbed fake news, uh, thanks to uh, a, a recent president and even more so now in the current presidential administration, not taking a political side, but wowee, <laughs> if, you, if you look at the news uh, and the things that come out, I mean, you, you, you just can't trust what's coming out. And I mean from anywhere. I'm not going to mention news channels or, or cable networks or any of those things. But I mean, I'm telling you, if something comes out, you know, wait three, four, five weeks, maybe eight weeks, depends on how big it is. And then the truth will come out later. And often the damage has been done because they like to put something forward. And then it turns out to be not true. 
And what does it mean that we live in an age of fake news? Well, regardless of the source of that or whoever made that term popular, we're talking about information that's true and we're talking about information that's not true. So information and disinformation. We're talking about propaganda, right? So when people are telling us what to believe and what not to believe, we really have to have a system for discerning the truth. Now, in the broad scope of things, Fake news pertains to any number of subjects, and therefore false teachers do as well, right? So you take any subject that we can possibly think of, and there is the truth, and then anything else that is not the truth can fall under the the heading of false teacher. And so they can do this with any subject. And so you can have false teachers on any subject. Big elephant in the room, I'll just go ahead and mention it. Uh, Hopefully I don't get censored for it or whatever, but just, and everybody can relate to this. The year 2020 was really a radical year for the whole world, and we were all introduced to the, the concept and the reality, the presence of something called coronavirus Nine or coronavirus 19. What was it? Coronavirus disease. There we go. 19 as in 2019, speaking of the year of its origin. And then all of those things, coronavirus disease got shortened to COVID, right? You get the CO from coronavirus uh, virus. The V I and vid is from virus. So coronavirus and then disease D there's where we got COVID. And then the year that it originated, Uh, And now we now know in 2023 that it originated not just in China, but out of a lab in China that has now been proven demonstrably. (laughs) And I say all this, I'm going somewhere with it. It's not political, trust me. Um, But, but, you know, we've all had to face this. So it, it originated out of a lab in China. And, uh, and now we've had to deal with COVID-19 and it has just disrupted lives. Well, okay, there is a truth about that, not a truth, the truth. There is the truth about that disease and its origins and all of those things. And then anyone who speaks uh, differently from that is obviously speaking a falsehood. Maybe they're doing it unintentionally. Maybe they're doing it intentionally. Uh, We now know, and we were told for two years solid, we were told that uh, you could not speak against what the government was telling us was the official narrative. And that just uh, wasn't just in the United States. That was in Australia. It was in Canada. It was in New Zealand. It was in countries in Europe. Whatever the government said, that was it. And if you said anything contrary to what the government said, you would be silenced on social media. Uh, Google uh, had a way of making sure that they could change the algorithm so that they could make sure that they could censor things that they didn't agree with. Facebook would ban you and put you in Facebook jail. If you said something that went contrary to the the published narrative, YouTube was the same way. Twitter, uh, we saw the banning of people all over the place. It was just a crazy time. I'm sure everybody can relate to that. And if you didn't firsthand experience it, you probably knew people who did. Well, now it's all come out or it is still in the process of emerging. And now we have concrete evidence. We have paper trails. We have, you know, the Pfizer documents that they wanted to suppress for 75 years and didn't want anybody to gain information to their clinical trials for 75 years, hoping that two full generations of people would die off before uh, they were exposed. Well, that didn't happen. Thankfully, there was somebody out there willing to, to do the right thing. And now that information has slowly been making an impact. And, and we now know things that 
prove that what our government and our government representatives told us was false. So they were actually false teachers as well. That's just one thing. And, and, and now we now know, right? You, you know, then, then we're left with a series of questions because now that the truth has been exposed and it's coming out, we kind of want to know why, right? Why was there this unbelievable, let's call it a global collusion to all be on the same page, a global narrative to say something that has now been proven demonstrably as false. And uh, the the result of what came from, from the COVID-19 pandemic was an injection that we were told around the globe was, quote, safe and effective. And that's just a slogan, apparently doesn't mean anything. And that has now also been proven to be demonstrably false. Uh, you take great risk uh, with those things and, and praise the Lord if you haven't experienced side effects from that. And I mean, because they got 70, you know, 60, 70% of the entire world to take those shots. Uh, you know, if, if you didn't have any side effects, praise God, count your blessings. Uh, but the side effects are horrendous, horrendous. <laughs> wow. Um, and whew, so... I could spend the whole podcast on that. I'm not going to. Let's bring it back. That's one area where we've seen demonstrably that there's truth and then there's false teachers. Well, we could go through every single subject that you could possibly imagine. And, you know, we could have false teachers in any number of things. Okay. So when it comes to truth or information or disinformation, right? When Peter and other biblical writers address this topic of false teachers, they're not addressing disinformation in general. They're not talking about government figures who lie to the people for nefarious purposes, <laughs> okay? Uh, they are addressing specifically what God has stated in his word. Now, when God speaks through his word, which that's what he does, that's how he communicates to us is, is through the word of God, this has implications. For instance, we know that from the word of God, that all mankind has been made in the image of God. That's Genesis 1.26. We also know from the word of God that God values life from conception, right? John the Baptist leapt in Elizabeth's womb at the news of Mary's miraculous conception, and we also have Psalm 139, which tells us directly that God is involved in the formation of the body while in the womb, etc. So other topics are addressed. And when news in general touches on those things that the scripture touches, then we ought to speak accurately about them. So what about other topics? Well, we should always speak the truth. And so that begs a question for our false teachers today. Peter spends all of chapter one building a case for concrete confidence in the word of God. Then all of chapter two exposing false teachers for what they are and what really drives them, motivates them. And even today, we'll touch on that subject again. They clearly don't evidence salvation, and the content of their preaching is based off of their depraved, sensual passions. Think about false teachers and their messages today. Now, 
I'm, I'm not talking about news anchors or administrative representatives. I'm talking about people who stand in pulpits before crowds of people on Sunday and say, this is what the Lord says. And they'll say things like, God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to be wealthy. God doesn't really hate fill-in-the-blank sin. He actually loves it. God isn't really exclusive. He accepts the worship of all sincere people around the world, right? I mean, go back and look at uh, Ligonier Ministries. They have begun recently every other year, I think it is, or maybe they do it every year. I, mean, I think it's every other year. They now do a, a pretty extensive survey called the State of Theology. And we learn a lot from that State of Theology because they have you know, they're very, very particular. They don't ask leading questions. And so they really target people who profess to be Christians and say, what do you believe about these things and select the right answer. And a lot of them are on the fundamentals of the faith, things that where you get them wrong shows that you don't have an understanding of the basic gospel. And you had in the 2020, right now, this is going back three years, in the 2020 State of Theology survey from Ligonier, almost 50% of self-identified evangelicals either strongly agreed with this statement uh, or at least leaned towards it. What statement I'm talking about? That God isn't really exclusive, that he accepts the worship of all sincere people around the world. Uh, now, if you believe that, I'll just say as kindly and gently and lovingly as I can, you're wrong. Uh, he doesn't accept the sincere worship of people all around the world. Case in point, go study Nadab and Abihu. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, go back to Leviticus, uh, what is it, chapter 9 or 10 or, or 11, maybe it is, where you have the sons of Aaron offering strange fire. They're, they're trying to worship the Lord, and they're doing it in all sincerity, and they're sincerely wrong, and they experience the death penalty because of it. Uh, just go back and read that, okay? We don't have time to go on to other things. Now, here's an interesting issue. What about climate change? I said I wasn't going to get to some others, but I only bring this up because somebody who is one of the most prominent religious figures in the world, like it or not, I don't agree with the theology at all here, but I'm talking about the leader of the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope, right? The Pope said that the greatest sin of the modern age was climate change. We're talking about climate sin. What? I, I mean, no. If you come to me and if anybody ever stuck a microphone in my face and said, hey, pastor, what is the greatest threat to, to humanity today in the modern age? And I would say, without hesitation, sin, right? Sin is the greatest threat to humanity. It's the biggest problem. And from sin, we have an outflow of massive things, but sin brings with it a death sentence. The reason that we all die eventually, whether we're, you know, die in a perceived young state, as some people say, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not guaranteed to live, you know, however many years, uh, there are averages, but then there's always exceptions to the average. That's why they're averages. You have people that die at three, and then you have people that die at 110. Um, and and so, you know, I, I don't really, I don't know how long I'm going to live. I don't know how long God has appointed for me. But the fact that there's death at all is as a result of sin. That's the biggest problem. 
So if we can just solve that issue, oh, by the way, it was solved at the cross of Calvary. You know, incredible, right? That was solved at the cross of Calvary. So uh, we now have a sin solution and you need to turn to the one who can save you from your sin and believe on him. And he is alive and well today. He he took the penalty of sin on in his own body on the tree, uh, on, on Calvary's tree, as it were, the cross, right? And by doing that, he paid the penalty for your sin. If you believe in him, you also recognize that after he was dead, he was buried in a tomb and then he rose from the dead of his own power and he conquered death and the grave and he offers you eternal life. Now you still have to die in this world, but he does offer eternal life. And uh, that would be, that would be definitely the greatest sin and the greatest threat, I should say, to humanity would be sin. You know, we could just keep going. I, why did I bring him up? Because what you're going to hear from pulpits now is not only this false teaching, God wants you to be happy, healthy, wealthy. God doesn't really hate sin. He actually loves it. He accepts all worship from all people that are just sincere. You could be sincerely wrong and, and worship Buddha. That's fine. You could be, uh, you, you know, just fill in the blank here. Uh, then you can walk into churches all across the world today and hear pastors preaching on climate change and stewardship of the world. And they're not doing it from the Bible. They're just parroting talking points. Uh, and you could go on and on and on. They're, they're false teachers. These are people who stand in the pulpit and say, thus says the Lord, when it's not what the Lord has said. So what do we do when we're just inundated by these things? Well, we see here that we can have confidence and not just can, we must have confidence in God's word, no matter what people say. Okay, we have to have confidence in the word of God, no matter what people say. So uh, we'll quickly, I used all this time to introduce our text here, but it's very important to set that background to do that. Okay, so if we're going to have confidence in God's word, no matter what people say around us, the first thing that we have to understand to help us to do that is to, have, to re recognize that confidence is a matter of the mind. This is verse one. This is all we'll get to. I, I told you at the beginning, we probably weren't going to get to <laughs> through verse three, and that's for sure. Okay. Confidence is a matter of the mind. Peter says, this is now the second letter, letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So, we see here that it's a matter of the mind. And first uh, thing that emerges under this idea that confidence is a matter of the mind is that you can make strong appeals to the mind through writing. This isn't the uh, emotional appeal. This isn't anything. He says, listen, I have written to you and you can make a strong appeal through writing. The pastoral heart of Peter is seen here in his address to the readers. First of all, he addresses them as beloved. This isn't the beginning of the letter. This is at the end. So he's dressing, addressing them as beloved, those who share the faith. They are beloved, not by Peter, although he does love them to be sure. But when he says beloved, he's saying that God loves them uh, and God loves them through Christ. So that title beloved is showing uh, the love that God has for his people. And you have to recognize too, this is really an interesting thing. Let's put ourselves in historic context here, historical context. This is a largely auditory society, both in the Old and New Testament times. 
And in that type of society where people take things uh, and, and they take them through the ear, right? And they process them that way. We see the importance of having the written word. This wasn't man's idea. God implemented the idea of the written word. Look at Deuteronomy chapter six, verses six to nine. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently. What? The words, not the experience, the words. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. That's the written word. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Wow. Okay, cross-reference that with Isaiah 57, verse 8. So you think about the Old Testament, specifically the Decalogue, right, the Ten Commandments. God wrote those down on tablets of stone. The written word is important. And so we can make strong appeals and reach the mind through the written word. And the importance of written revelation is, is seen all throughout the Bible. Now, Jeremiah 36, the entire chapter, is going to address this, uh, but... Again, we, we would see this in the first three verses specifically. Jeremiah 36, we see this. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. And how are they going to do that? They're going to do that by hearing the words of God that he instructs Jeremiah to write down, okay? And then in verse 27 of that same chapter, we read this because it's not received well, okay? So Jeremiah writes this, and the king's like, yeah, forget that. And in verse 27, after the king had burned the scroll with the words of Baruch, the, the words that Baruch wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, he's Jeremiah's scribe, right? The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, take another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And then he says, and I'm going to add a couple other things to that as well. So is God's written word important? Yes. So important that he says, write this down. It's very important. Oh, somebody burned it. Okay. I want you to write it down again and we'll, we'll just add to it. Okay. So strong appeals to the mind are made through writing. And then we see this as we come back to the text here in Second uh, Peter chapter 3, and, and that is namely that Scripture stirs up the mind. Scripture stirs up the mind. So Scripture is writing. Writing has a way of making a strong appeal to the mind, and Scripture in particular stirs up the mind. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Note again, the appeal is to the mind. It's not to the, the emotions. It's not to the splogna, if you will, the gut where we have visceral reactions. But if there is any emotional reaction, it is through the mind that produces that emotion. And we would call that affect. Okay. This is, this is the affections. 
So when he's talking about the mind here, this is with reference to the faculty of thinking, or we could think of it as the seat of intellect. In other words, Peter is not appealing to emotion or the gut. When it comes to doctrine, doctrine is not a, a matter of feelings. Doctrine is not a matter of hunches. I, I think God would like this. Well, where do you base that? I just, I just feel that God would feel this way or react this way. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard somebody say that to me. And it's not a matter of what you hope for. It's not a matter of what you think. It's what God has said, which is why we always come back to the Bible. Show me in the scripture where that is right? This was Martin Luther's famous response when he was demanded of by the Catholic Church to recant all of his writings when he faced this council that, you know, was ready to condemn him to death called a, a diet or a, a deet, right? In, the, in the, the little town of Worms, Germany, looks like diet of worms when we read it in, in English, but he was to stand trial and examination by the Catholic Church, and they're saying, listen, the things that you're writing are in opposition to the dogmas and the teaching of the church. And he says, okay, you're calling me to recant all my writings. I need a little bit of time to think about that. Say, okay, granted, you get to go home and think about your, your response. He comes back the next day and he says, okay, you know, that famous line, here I stand, I can do no other, is preceded by, unless you can convince me from the scriptures, the error of my theology and my ways, I cannot, no, indeed, I must not, uh, you know, here I stand, I can do nothing else. I mean, unless you can show me from the scripture. And that's why it's so important that all of the root of our theology, the foundation of everything has to start in the mind. It cannot start in the heart, in the gut, you know, with feelings. It, it is all a matter of intellect. God has given us the mind and he, he addresses us through the mind, right? So truth in relation to revelation is a matter of the intellect. It's a matter of the mind. And notice also that it is a sincere mind mind, which is an adjective that denotes something that is unmixed. In other words, I, I don't have mixed feelings about this. I'm not open to the idea of throwing something else in the pot with it. Okay. That's all we have time for. I've gone long on this because of the introduction, but it really helps frame the context for this entire chapter. We must have confidence in God's word, no matter what people say. And the first thing we've seen then is confidence is a matter of the mind. Strong appeals are made through writing and the scriptures stir up the mind. So let your mind be stirred up by the scriptures today. This has been another podcast of expositional excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.